Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian and Anthony McDaniels back with, well, a well overdue episode of the Wacky World of Energy. I think the last time we recorded was probably somewhere in March, but plenty of news has come out. We'll try and narrow the scope to just the last month. And also, one more thing if you're listening to this, what are you doing? We put these on YouTube. They look great. We put up the articles. We put up the visuals that are in the articles. Everything you need to better understand it. And hey, two beautiful mugs you can look at to add to the entertainment value. But before I get too narcissistic, I say we get right into it, starting with an article you actually sent me last month about the Navy. Yeah. In the international space. Yeah. Yeah. So this article goes back to July 6th, 2023. It's a Reuters article. U.S. Navy says it prevented Iran from seizing tankers in the Gulf of Oman. <laughs> so um, for those who have been paying attention, there were previously, I think, two tankers, was it? In, in May, a very short time. May frame, or just, April? Or... Yeah, in May, just this year. And a few weeks apart. Iranian forces had seized a couple of tankers destined for the United States. And on um, July 5th, beginning of July here, uh, the U.S. Navy said it intervened to prevent Iran from seizing two, so I guess that would have been two more, uh, commercial tankers in the Gulf of Oman on, on Wednesday. This would have been that uh, the very beginning of July, end of June time frame. In the latest series of attacks on ships in the area since 2019, in a statement, the U.S. Navy said that an Iranian vessel had approached the Marshall Islands flagged oil tanker TRF Moss in international waters in the Gulf of Oman. Quote, the Iranian vessel departed the scene when the U.S. Navy guided missile destroyer USS McFowl uh, arrived on the station. The statement said, adding that the Navy had deployed surveillance assets, including maritime patrol aircraft. The Navy said that about three hours later, it received a distress call from the Bahamas flagged oil tanker Richmond Voyager while the ship was more than 20 miles off the coast of Muscat, Oman, and transitioning or transiting international waters. Another Iranian vessel had closed within one mile of the Richmond Voyager while hailing the commercial tanker to stop, the Navy said, adding that the McFowl directed course towards the merchant ship at maximum speed. Prior to McFowl's arrival on scene, Iranian personnel fired multiple long bursts from both small arms and crew-served weapons. Richmond Voyager sustained no casualties or significant damage. However, several rounds hit the ship's hull near the crew living spaces. The Iranian vessel departed when the McFowl arrived. U.S. Oil Major Chevron confirmed that it managed the Richmond Voyager, that the crew were safe, and the vessel was operating normally. No Iranian comment. <laughs> mm -hmm. Of course. Um, we don't need a good continue to read this article i don't think word for word but it is a reminder that uh, things aren't all smooth sailing as it were no pun intended <laughs> in the middle east and i do not find that these things are going to just go away um, they've already seized two these two the seizing was being prevented from happening you know pretty much every time since i mean the last couple of decades when you would have something like this happen in the middle east oil prices would respond oh I yeah mean, they would go extremely they would move north um it, it seems very odd you know you have this happening 
in a time frame where oil prices were just not really responsive at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there was really no, you know, if you look at the, if you look at the time frame that they're talking about here, um, <laughs> this happens around the same time that oil hits sixty seven dollars. <laughs> Um, and since that point, oil has moved north, but it didn't really move at all on, on this news when it broke. So it seems a little odd that there was no real reaction in the market to either that event or the event that happened where the tankers were seized mm-hmm. or diverted, and whichever. There's no way that, well, if I tried to explain it, I might say, oh, this might become increasingly regular in the area because this wasn't just four attacks. Uh, the Navy statement said, since 2021, Iran has harassed, attacked, or seized nearly 20 internationally flagged merchant vessels, vessels, presenting a clear threat to regional maritime security and the global economy. So maybe it's just par for the course two years into attacks. I doubt that, but uh, you're right. It's a pretty good indicator for how things are going over the ocean. But like you said, no reaction in the markets. Yeah. Yeah, if I were to take a guess, it was probably going to be one of the um, one of the mechanisms they were employing to um, skirt sanctions. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to Iran, that's usually what it is, because otherwise they're turning off transponders, trading oil in the ocean. Russia's oil was going to find its way to market, as we said, over a year ago. That's what's going on now, so I would not be surprised if Iran, who has historically done this, is continuing to do so. I think that's everything I've got for this article. You got anything else you want to say? No, we'll have plenty more to talk about as we get into <laughs> Yeah, we'll get a little more heated. This next one is from oilprice.com. It was published on July 17th, talking about how Baltic states are hoping to decouple from Russian power grid in early 2025. Interesting thoughts right off the bat, but let me get into a little bit of the body. The Baltic states of Estonia and Lithuania have set a target to decouple from the Russian power grid by early 2025, ending three decades of dependence on Moscow, according to Reuters. As a compromise, we're agreeing to bring this deadline a year closer, so leaving in the beginning of 2025, which was a quote from Estonia's prime minister. We will see what happens in Ukraine, where people are being killed and bombs continue to fall. I don't think it's the right choice to keep cooperating with the aggressor just because this saves a few cents, Rokas Masilius said, the chief of the Lithuanian power grid operator Likgrid. So that's pretty much the bulk of the article. Uh, Of course, there's more. It gets into NAFTA gas and Ukrainian's gas company. But the biggest thing, one of the things you like to harp on every once in a while, electricity is not power. So let's say you decouple from the Russian grid. And instead of importing electricity, well, you still have to generate it. So I, I don't see how this totally helps them. Sure, it severs a couple ties of dependence, but they're still kind of in the same spot should this conflict go on, no? Yeah. I mean, who? where are they going to get their electricity from? Mm-hmm. You know, and again, and, and what I talk about when I say electricity isn't power, it's really more the, the realization that electricity is the movement of energy, mm-hmm. right? Is electron moving from? Point A to point B. Um, when you combust something and generate steam, for example, that steam turns a turbine, and that turbine spins around and it generates electricity. And that electricity has to have somewhere to go. It's like a it's like a flow. It needs to go somewhere. It is movement of energy. 
from point A to point B. Um, them getting off of, what does this say, Russian power grid only really means that they're going to have to build a new power grid mm -hmm. or basically commandeer the existing power grid, which could be dangerous in its own right. It could give Russia enough excuse to go into the Baltic states and say, you've taken our stuff, mm -hmm. right? I don't think this accomplishes a darn thing at all. I don't think this helps them with energy security whatsoever um, because electrical infrastructure is one thing. How you're generating the electricity is entirely another. Yep. And I don't really know how they're solving that problem by getting away from some infrastructure. Right, just moving a power station domestically. Yeah. Yeah, and you're talking about giving Russia an excuse to aggress further. This last paragraph, Gazprom CEO Alexei Miller had earlier threatened to slap sanctions on Naftogaz, again, Ukrainian's gas company, as it continues to pursue an arbitration case for non-payment of transit fees by Gazprom. According to Naftogaz, quote, the funds were not paid by Gazprom, neither on time nor in full, which uh, the gas transit last year, Ukraine suspended the flow of gas through some city, which I can't pronounce, which delivers almost a third of the fuel piped from Russia to Europe through Ukraine. So funds not being transferred, people believing someone owes you and you owe them. It's getting messy. And at the end of the day, you're right. It doesn't do a whole lot for energy independence. No, no, it's just, I don't think how it helps them at all that, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do and, and they'll, they'll lay in the bed that they make. Yep. I mean, it will likely increase the cost of energy because it doesn't deliver anything new and costs money to invest into it. But, hey, I wish all the best to them and people securing energy Maybe over they there. can cut down their forests for wind fields. <laughs> I think they already are. Most of Europe, I don't know about the Baltic states if you get that far east, but they do classify wood pellets as biofuel. Ah, biofuel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which you could also classify hydrocarbon fundamentally <laughs> as. But we don't that. No. Should we move it along? We should. Next one is a tweet from White Walker. Anthony also shared this one with the group. It says, breaking OPEC statement. Canadian companies CNQ and SU, which I uh, believe SU is Suncor. I forget the other one. It's also another Canadian refiner, have been identified as major naked oil shorters. By executing daily ladder attacks, the companies openly sell millions of synthetic oil barrels per year, suppressing benchmark oil prices. OPEC intends to notify regulatory authorities and calls on all oil companies and investors to alert their congressmen to this destructive Canadian conspiracy. So we've got a whole lot going on here. First of all, naked shorts. Some people may be familiar. How does it apply in the context of futures when you're not actually trading, well, equities? Um, well, basically, most of the trading that happens in the oil market has nothing to do with physical delivery. Mm -hmm. right? I, I want to say 90 plus percent on average of the contracts traded have nothing to do with physical delivery. I mean, if you just look at the number of contracts traded on the CME mm -hmm. for crude light futures one CL one um, front month contract WTI and you multiply their volume which is a thousand barrels per contract times the number of contracts the vast majority of oil trading has nothing to do with physical delivery just speculation to make some money yeah pretty much it's mm -hmm. financial engineering games and it's you know stuff like that doesn't contribute anything to the real economy at all um so 
first you have to start off with the fact that you have to realize that the these futures markets, which is what every bank uses for their their you know reference point, it's what we get paid on to produce our oil and gas or any commodities you know at all. Is all set by these futures markets: gold, oil, silver, copper, so on and so go on and on and on. Well, here's the thing. If you start with the reality that you know the majority of what's being traded has nothing to do with physical transfer of these commodities, it's all paper, then it does set up the possibility, the very real possibility, that banks potentially or potentially not acting in the interest of their local governments are going out there and saying, let's basically sell crude futures, right? Think about think about a major refiner. Hmm. Wouldn't it serve them if they had the pockets to be able to get the feedstock a couple of dollars cheaper, especially if their government, at best, turns a blind eye to what they're doing Mm -hmm. and at worst is supporting them in doing (laughs) this because the government doesn't want energy prices to go up too fast because then that'll wake everybody up to the energy debauchery that we have going on on the planet. Mm -hmm. And once people have to really pay the price for these reckless and short-sighted energy policies through their own pocketbook, I believe that even the government understands that that might really sour the taste on people's desire to accelerate some sort of energy transition. You know, there will be people that argue, well, high energy prices in oil and gas would, would accelerate that transition. That's great, except for you miss one part. How do you honestly believe that you're going to replace in kind the things that you would need to replace to maintain the demand mm-hmm. that that you have, right? The demand for, I want my air conditioner to work. I want my refrigerator. I, I just want electricity to be reliable Yep. in a modern country, okay? In an industrialized nation, in a first world economy. You can't just pop up all these solar panels and wind turbines and get that overnight. They've been trying. It doesn't work very well. This is why Europe is in the problem that they are in mm-hmm. once Russia decided enough was enough for them. Okay? So you have these things going on that whether it's true or not, if OPEC and enough of their friends in the BRICS countries believe that there is some tomfoolery going on in these futures markets, they will potentially cease relying on them as much. What does that mean? That means we're, let's just trade oil out of the U S dollar system, Mm -hmm. which is what you're actively seeing happen more and more and more and more. I mean, the BRICS countries are talking about rolling out a, a gold back standard as early as next month. Yep. Okay. So you're going to have WTI futures through the Chicago Mercantile Exchange trading through a U.S. dollar system. What happens, though, when more and more oil trade physical doesn't rely on that? What happens to the, the futures market? I mean, for example, they could say there's a lot of things that could happen. You could have USWTI futures still maintain suppressed, but anything that we import from other countries might end up being on a much different price scale. 
Um, time will tell, but I think this kind of dovetails in very well to the next article, Tavis. What is it that we have coming up here? Uh, you're looking at the IEA one, correct? Yeah. <laughs> uh, next, we have this article from Bloomberg talking about the IEA specifically, the director, Fatih Byrol. Now, this was... Uh, an article talking about how OPEC should be wary of bolstering oil prices as it could hurt the global economy and accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels to clean energy. Saudi Arabia and other OPEC plus nations surprised world oil markets by announcing new production cutbacks earlier this month, which triggered a brief rally in prices. This is an older article. This is from April. Mm -hmm. The intervention could backfire on the organization of petroleum exporting countries as higher prices may curtail fuel demand and push consumers towards electricity and other renewable energy sources, according to IEA director Fatih Byrol. Oh, what a ding <laughs> His logic is circular and not well thought out at all. In fact, it doesn't even make any sense. Uh, I'm just going to hop in here. Please walk us through the... Uh, this freaking moron is over here saying they have to be careful. If oil producers try to push up the price, it will only accelerate the electric car's penetration. Oh, really, you freaking moron? Really? Okay. All right. So, a report from the... This article continues... I just, this is a bunch of freaking propaganda for people that just want to push a, an energy transition for, I don't even know what the heck they're looking at, but they're obviously not looking at reality. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, this report from the Paris based IEA released on Wednesday showed that the transition is already underway with almost one in every five new cars sold worldwide this year being electric. That compares with just 2% in 2019. So according to them, 20% of new vehicles sold were electric? Apparently worldwide. I would be very curious to see if that is an actual real statistic <laughs> that is proven out when time goes by a little bit more. Or if that's just something they cherry-picked. Oh, it, it has to be, because I'm seeing, at least around here, lots of new Teslas on the road, but not one in five vehicles being electric. Come on, there's lots of other vehicles, too. Internal combustion as well. Yeah. One in five. So they say that by 2030, 60% of all new cars sold in the U.S., China, and Europe, three biggest markets, will be electric. Wow. So we have uh, six and a half years to go from <laughs> one in five to three in five. <laughs> I find this to be very hard to believe. OPEC officials have said that the supply curbs agreed this month. This is going back to April. We needed to safeguard oil markets against aggressive, unwarranted short selling by speculators. Crude prices have largely surrendered the gains since the cuts were unveiled. Uh, um, you know, here's the thing. So we went on, I decided to go on. I mean, they talk about it in the article. In 2019, only 2% 2 of cars sold were um, electric. Hmm. So I go in here to this chat GPT here, and I asked it. On it. What percent of cars sold in the U.S. are electric? Now, the latest data it has available is 2020. 
And that was 2% of car sales in the United States. 2%. 2% in 2020 were electric. Which, according to the IEA, is identical to 2019, one year prior. Yeah. Um, then I asked, what percent of cars sold in the, U are, in the EU are electric? It was about 8%. Okay. And then, what percent of cars sold in China are electric? And it was 5.4%, 2020. So if you took the whole thing and just say, let's average it 6%, mm -hmm. which is high. Mm -hmm. If 2% was electric in the U.S., 8% in the EU, and 54 in China, let's just say it's 6%. Let's be generous. So essentially they're saying that there is going to be a tenfold increase, assuming that car sale demand stays flat that there's going to be a 10x increase in the amount of electric vehicles sold in the next six years seems to be what they're claiming seems to be not reality <laughs> to me yeah and if we go further to poke plot holes in this story of a green renewable future let's say that we do get to that what kind of electricity demand are we going to have on forms of electricity i mean still you have to charge those vehicles and if it was renewable, that cost of electricity goes higher and, again, works to balance out with the cost of yeah. oil. So Yeah, and again, a, a reminder of basic physics would be helpful. <laughs> um, you can't just – electricity is energy that wants to move. Mm. And when too much electric potential gets built up, it discharges. We observe this natural phenomenon called lightning. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. It's electric potential that's generating, generating, generating. And when it gets big enough, it has to discharge. It has it has to release that potential. Electricity does not like to be bottled up. It doesn't like to be in a jar. Batteries is the best we can do. And battery technologies can and will improve. I'm con confident in that. But there's one thing that you need to make all these batteries. And it's called metals and mining. I don't see all these new mines coming online in the developed world. And most of the mining and manufacturing mines on the planet that support the vast majority of things like electric cars, and wind turbines, and all these other things that you have to mine to make, it is out of China and or Africa. And China slash Russia have a lot more friends in Africa than the United States and NATO. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I don't really understand how all these Western thinking, green, progressive thought type leaders can reconcile the harsh reality that if you don't like OPEC because a group of nations that doesn't see your vision for the world is fighting against what you're trying to do. So let's just get rid of the OPEC situation and let's just rely on China and Africa for all of our mining. Oh, wow. Is that really the lesser of two evils? I doubt it. <laughs> I severely doubt it. And you know what? When you produce oil, you can put it in a barrel. Mm -hmm. You can put it in a tanker. You can put it in a tank. When you have gasoline in your tank, it doesn't discharge. Okay? Liquid fuels in the form of hydrocarbons don't lose energy in transit. They don't lose energy when they're stationary. They maintain their energy potential. They are stable energy. That's what they are. 
hydrocarbons. And and again, I'm going to go on and on for whoever listens to us, guys. Let's all and gals stop saying fossil fuels. It's not accurate. Mm-hmm. They don't come from fossils. Hydrocarbons do not come from fossils. Mm-mm. They are hydrocarbons. They come from the life cycle and from inorganic sources. That's where they come from. Why? Because hydrogen comes from the sun. It is extremely abundant in our solar system. And carbon is abundant enough that it was a suitable choice for the basis of all life on this earth. Carbon and hydrogen are exceedingly abundant atoms and elements in our solar system and on our planet. Ergo, you have a lot of hydrocarbons. These are not fossil fuels. And they are no more Mm non-renewable than wind and solar. Why? Not because the wind will stop blowing or the sun will stop shining anytime soon, but because the energy that we have to put in to make the wind turbines, the solar panels, and the batteries is a lot. And we need fossil fuels, as they say fossil fuels. We need hydrocarbons to do this. Mm -hmm. We have to have hydrocarbons to make these other things. We can't use electricity to mine the way that we can use diesel fuel. And that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. It is a fact. You have to, electricity, when it gets generated, wants somewhere to go. It needs somewhere to be. That's why the grid is so delicate. You can't just, you know, if I, just imagine a very simple scenario where you just have a little island for yourself, right? And you wanted to utilize energy, right? Mm-hmm. If I was generating electricity on this little island, I would have to make sure that whatever I was generating was being complemented in what was being used. I have to balance it. Mm-hmm. I can't just have excess sitting there on the grid because this does things like blows up substations, yep. transformers, fries things. It doesn't work that way. It must have an equivalent demand to what its supply is. You can't be out of balance on this thing. If you are, the grid will fail. Components of the grid will fail. People can and will lose their lives. Things will be damaged. Property, infrastructure, pollution will occur Mm -hmm. as these things explode because you can't balance them. Electricity needs to be in balance because it is not energy. It is the movement it wants to move. Now, if I'm on that same island and I just want to have a giant tank of oil, enough oil in that tank to run my little island for the next 200 years, I can store that in that tank. And as long as it doesn't turn on fire and combust, the energy potential in that tank a year later is going to be exactly the same as the energy potential in that tank today. It won't change per unit mass. It just won't. Mm-hmm. Not like electricity. You put that same thing in a giant battery, it's going to discharge over time. It will lose its energy potential. The other thing is, now let's say I have to go from one island to the next island. Let's say I have to make a run. It's going to go a couple of miles. Every single foot, that I have to put electricity through a line is another foot that I lose some in transit. Mm-hmm. 
But if I take half of that tank of oil and I put it in a line and I pump it over to the other island, I lose essentially zero. Yeah, whatever it takes to run the pump to make that difference in uh, pressure. That's, That's it. it. That's it. But the actual energy itself is the same yep. per unit mass. You yep. don't lose a thing. Okay. Not like compared to the line loss of electrical oh, lines. Yeah. It's huge. You just can't, people don't understand, but the fact remains that electricity, what these people want to do, what they're selling to the public about, we need to go green and everything needs to be electric. First of all, you need to be able to mine all this stuff and make it. And second of all, you need to be able to have a grid that can take these kinds of demands. What happens to a grid that all of a sudden needs to charge thousands of cars, tens of thousands of cars, millions of cars? Well, cars? Yeah. Cars? Not These phones. are high <laughs> torque type of applications for electrics. Mm -hmm. That's what they are. High torque. You have to turn stuff. You have to move physical things. You can't just light up a phone. You have to transport people heavy things and everybody loves to say that electric cars are so efficient well they better darn well be because of all the energy you have to put in to make the darn thing mm -hmm. of course they're going to be more efficient by the time you have an electric car ready to roll down the road but how are you going to supply that at scale and then how are you going to power it at scale they don't know the answers to this no they have no clue so Good luck with your 60% going electric. And it seems to me that if you were playing poker with these people, they they have a tell. They're scared. If they really believed that, that we were on track to have more than half of the world's cars on electric within the next decade, at least from the three biggest markets then why are they so worried about higher oil prices? Wouldn't you think that they would adopt and embrace that so that the average consumer would be more ready? He likes to say, well, that will happen. They should be careful. Why does he care if OPEC has revenue in the next 10 years or not? He obviously doesn't care at all. He's not one of them. He's threatening them. He's warning them. He's just a shill. He's a paid shill for interest that would like to tell people that the world is melting and that they all need to get on something that is going to ultimately be dependent on government handouts and rationing systems. Because I'm going to tell you right now, the only way that I believe that over 60% of the cars in the U.S., the EU, and China are going to be electric by 2030 is if the amount of car sales plummets mm -hmm. a lot. Basically, yeah, you can have the majority electric, but only if the vast majority overall drops. They can't supply a 10x increase in less than a decade to electric cars. There aren't the mines. Yeah, no. There aren't the mines. Is it possible that humanity could provide that many electric cars? Yes. Possible. It is. Over that time frame, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I think also at scale when people start not being able to charge their cars, 
that's going to be a problem. It's like when California came out and said, don't charge your cars between the hours. Basically, when everybody would be charging their home cars. and charging <laughs> their cars. Uh-huh. And it's- they don't have a massive percentage of electric cars in California. It's not like California is 50% electric. No. I don't even know if it's over 10. But still, it affected that delicate balance of supply and demand, and it yeah. was pulling more than you could, and like yeah. you said, damaging components. And well, yeah, people like their AC, so I guess we'll have to pick. So we'll see what happens, but I guess let's just move on to the next article we may have here. Next one, and again, you folks should be watching this on YouTube. We got some great visuals to go over. Also, another tweet from Ted Cross about ducks drilled but uncompleted wells. He says, I hate to break it to you, but we've run out of pandemic-era ducks. In fact, they've been gone for a while. After lockdown and the OPEC-Russia price war devastated activity, a big tailwind to help production rebound was the number of wells operators had in their portfolio drilled but uncompleted. Ducks. With the well already drilled, operators could complete it and kickstart production relatively cheaply and with a short cycle time. However, we are now down to only 207 wells drilled in 2020 left uncompleted, just 5% of the peak in January of 21. This is not a number that will go to zero, as some wells will never be completed due to operational or other issues. Most of the duck inventory was completed by the end of 2021, but I still hear mentions of them as an important part of operator inventory. Now, a new duck cycle may be beginning, at least in the Haynesville. Whether that broadens out as operators adapt to a lower price regime remains to be seen. And again, this figure is (laughs) dramatic. Lots of the time we're posting stuff from the EIA where the vertical axis is, you know, it doesn't start from zero because we're in the hundreds of millions and we want to see some movement. But this goes from zero to 4,000. Literally, it goes from just a couple hundred rigs up to 4,000 from December of 19 to January of 21, about a year's time frame. And then... Because nobody wanted to bring on the wells when oil went in. Right. We'll drill it, but yeah, we're going to sell it for bring, 30 bucks. Yeah, or worse. And that makes sense. But... So, yeah, those ducks, they peaked at, and again, this was wells that were drilled leading up into the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them. But these are the ones that would have been brought on. Yep. But then 2020 was very weird. Terrible markets. So you have this peak. Of 4,217 ducks in January of 2021. And now it's around 200. 5%. So it's gone, mm-hmm. as he says. It is absolutely gone. And, you know, it's no big surprise that the ducks peaked in January of 21. Because if we look back at oil prices around that time... and. Do this real quick so that I don't speak from memory. <laughs> that can be challenging. No, it's fine. I'll be sure to throw a similar graph on the screen for those of you watching as well. So the reason why that ducks peaked in January of 21 is because that's when oil cracked over around 50 bucks and then started to go north. And it was essentially on an uptrend from that point all the way up until the Russia-Ukraine situation blowing up literally (laughs) in the beginning of 2022 so now the ducks are gone our inventory is gone at least the new ones the ones that would come in and make big production are gone and uh that's a very real issue uh because what it does is it essentially means at least to me 
that the U.S. production of around 12 million barrels a day is about all we're going to see. We ain't going to get back to the 13 million or whatever we were leading up into COVID. Not soon. Not with prices under 100. Mm -hmm. And and I would even say that I don't even know if we could get to a new peak in U.S. oil production with prices under 150. You know, so the the inflationary effects are, are real. $70 $70 oil is not what it was in 2019. I don't think anybody who's in this industry at all for any period of time would really argue with that. Now, is 70 the new 40? Is 70 the new 60? That's That can be debated. But I don't think anybody would argue that $70-ish range oil price in 2023 is nothing like 70-ish price range was in 2019. No, and all of the indicators would agree with you. I mean, it's not just price. It's not just ducks, but look at the rig count. I think in 11 weeks, we're down 90 rigs, so we are just yeah, hemorrhaging it, yeah. production opportunities. Yeah, yeah. if you look at rig counts, I'll put you, that would, up right now. you would think, if all you did was look at that graph, you would think that you would think that oil was in the $40 range <laughs> because yeah. the last time rig counts fell this fast was when it was. That's a fact. Look at the charts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, so I do believe that commodities in general and oil, and certainly, are going to have to go north to account for inflation, to account for lack of investment, decreasing years production. On end, decreasing production. I mean, I just, I just don't, I just don't see how they can. Mm-hmm. I really don't. Um, the investment is anemic. Everybody's saying, oh, we need to get off of oil, we need to get off of oil, as if everything that they type on, they talk on, they send their communications from, isn't comprised of oil, hydrocarbons. Mm. I mean, people should find it interesting that, uh, this is a factoid that I kind of committed to memory, anybody can, can check this, but I found it interesting that it takes about as much mining to generate an iPhone as it does to make a refrigerator. Yep. Why? Because for these lithium batteries, and this is just a small one, it's in a phone. It doesn't have to pick up and move something. Mm -hmm. It just has to light up, and it has to power itself for communication and computation. It doesn't have to physically move anything. That a phone, a smartphone, takes as much mining to make as many tons of ore, I think, is what it was to move to make us an iPhone as a refrigerator. Yeah, because the fridge just has the compressor, right? iPhone's got everything. It doesn't need all of the special minerals and metals mm-hmm. and all these things into it to make it function. So, how many refrigerators equivalent is, say, a Tesla? <laughs> I don't even dozens. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Hundreds. It's, it's a lot of mining. It's a lot of digging massive holes in the ground on this planet that's what it is Mm -hmm. i mean i'm sorry but that's true because it's just not concentrated in the soil as much as some of these other things as much as perhaps say hydrocarbons yeah you know for electricity to even conceptually function at scale you have to have good metals that are efficient at moving the electricity through them Mm. can't have a lot of resistance copper is a big one yep right i mean 
gold is great, but it's way too expensive, <laughs> yeah. right? Silver is really good too, but also compared to copper, it's extremely expensive. There's other metals that are good conductors of electricity, but you can't just conduct electricity through whatever the heck you want. No. And if you want to do high computations and you want to do energy torque through electricity and things like this, you have to have very efficient metals at conducting electricity. You need to mine a lot of ore to make these metals available to you, right? You have to basically dig a crap load of rock out of the earth, crush it, put a bunch of chemicals and energy into the system to break out the metals that you want to get from that ore, separate them, and then you have to be able to purify them. This is not easy. No. Okay? And it takes a lot of energy just to do that. So good luck with your energy transition, everybody. But I just I just don't see how or where you're going to get all this to happen. But, you know, let's go ahead and move on. What do we have for the next article? <laughs> well, we've got two left in the domestic space, and they both have the common thread of, you know, litigation, and they'll get increasingly more ridiculous. But we'll start with the first. Small U.S. refiners are suing the EPA over denial of biofuel waivers. <laughs> this one's from oilprice.com, and, you know, this has been in development for probably a good part of a year now. Several small U.S. refiners plan to challenge in court last week's decision by the Environmental Protection Agency to deny waivers to refiners who had asked to be exempted from the biofuel blending requirements, one of the refiners, Par Pacific, told Reuters. Under the Renewable Fuel Standard, the RFS, oil refiners are required to blend growing amounts of renewable fuels into gasoline and diesel. Refiners that don't have the infrastructure to blend biofuels must purchase tradable blending credits known as Renewable Identification Numbers, or RINs. The EPA has the authority to grant waivers from the RFS to refineries whose oil processing capacity is below 75,000 barrels per day and who can prove that blending biofuels would hurt them financially to an unsustainable level. Basically, they're not going to force you to operate at a loss as long as you can prove it. The EPA denied on Friday as many as 26 petitions from 15 small refineries that had applied for waivers for the 2016-2018 and 2021-2023 compliance years. Two of the outstanding petitions are still pending. Quote, After reviewing more than a decade of RFS market data and confidential information submitted by petitioning small refineries, EPA concluded that none of the 26 SRE petitions demonstrated disproportionate economic hardship caused by compliance with the RFS program. Since taking office, the Biden administration has not granted a single waiver to any refiner that has applied to be exempted wow. from biofuel blending requirements, according to data from the EIA. Yeah. This is rough stuff. I mean, they're looking at the Biden administration looking to cut emissions is denying waivers for biofuel blending mandates in stark contrast with the Trump administration which granted 34 waivers to refiners from compliance year 2017 and 17 waivers for compliance year 2016. Now the small refiners seek to challenge the Biden administration's denial of waivers by joining forces in a lawsuit, Par Pacific spokesman Ashimi Patel toyed Reuters. We believe the EPA's decision is arbitrary, capricious, and contrary to law, the spokesperson said. And that rounds out the article. Mm. 
I, again, this is another thing, you know, that we've been harping on electric. Biofuels. Primarily, we're talking about ethanol. In the States, yep. Okay. Where do we get ethanol from? Well, we get it from two main feedstocks. One is corn ethanol. Mm. Iowan corn farmers love it. I know mm -hmm. you're from Iowa. But... <laughs> and the second one, the bigger one, actually, especially globally, is ethanol feedstock from sugarcane. Yep. Where are they growing the sugarcane? In tropical climates where sugarcane likes to grow. It doesn't grow in northern areas where it gets cold and snows. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't. It's a trop it's sugarcane. It's a tropical plant. So where do they plant this sugarcane? Well, as it turns out, they like to level lots of hectares of rainforest. That's right, gentlemen and ladies. Rainforest. We are leveling rainforest to plant to sugar plant cane. sugarcane to create a monoculture in an old area that has the rain. The rain. You're cutting down forests that are what they say the rainforests were like the lungs of the earth right mm -hmm. you're cutting down rainforests to make sugarcane plantations sugarcane plantations that does not have the ability to go through its normal life cycle of it the plant the tree the whatever grows gets old withers dies and then puts all those things back in the soil. Oh, no. No, this is all artificial. Mm -hmm. We're cutting down all these old forests to plant sugar cane. Sugar cane. And to even take it a step further, this is slash and burn agriculture. They yeah. don't just cut it down. They burn these, like you said, hectares of acres to yeah. put all of that carbon into the air and back into the soil. And then plant more plants to eventually burn. Yeah. Because it's green. And when we, when we put this ethanol in our tanks and we combust it, you still end up with carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide out the tailpipe. Why? Because ethanol is another form of hydrocarbon. Mm -hmm. Sorry to break it to everybody, but everybody should do a little bit of research on the genesis of biofuel. Mm. of ethanol and fuel this started around 2004 with bush jr administration mm. and the genesis of it was essentially back then there was a belief we were running out of oil this is before the shale boom mm -hmm. adding ethanol into gasoline was a way to buy time to put some other component in gasoline that didn't need crude oil feedstock and now it's been just totally turned on its head. Yeah, with we've this, 180 from that. <laughs> that it was, and it's just been around since then. Mm -hmm. You know, not to mention the damage that ethanol does to every single internal combustion engine on the planet, and the shortened life cycles of every internal combustion engine on the planet because of it. Which means that those cars and those engines don't run as long. Which means they have to be repaired more, which takes resources. It takes more metals. It takes more supply chain. And then they don't have as long of a life, which takes even more resources. It's extremely wasteful. You're still putting that CO2 into the atmosphere from it. You're 
you're cutting down rainforest to create it mm-hmm. and you're hurting engines as far as i can tell biofuels are the biggest blight on humanity ethanol is a disaster mm-hmm. it is horrible for the environment it is horrible for the economy it is horrible for human health it is horrible for animal health right biodiversity severely decreased yes. to house one crop one crop that is pest controlled we should be growing food not fuel mm-hmm. we can grow food to eat we don't have to grow food to burn i mean how much arable land has been taken it's up? just ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous these biofuels are disgusting to me i don't think i don't see how they serve any any interest that would actually care about the environment if you really look at how they're made and and now it's just going to be something oh we need to have more biofuels in our gasoline why because it's good for the environment actually it's horrible for the environment there is not one single thing that i can point to at scale where the benefits outweigh the drawbacks for ethanol production it is horrible and as far as all that corn from iowa and states like it that sell for corn ethanol, you know what it used to be before they had the ethanol? They would make agricultural feed for livestock from that same corn field. Mm-hmm. Now, instead of making feed for animals and livestock, they're burning it in internal combustion engines, damaging the engines, still putting out the same emissions that they had before. And if you really do an analysis on the life cycle of a biofuel, you're probably creating more carbon output into the atmosphere. It is energy net negative. Lots of the reports that say, oh, it's great, it is green, pick very strange points, say the start of growth of that biofuel, rather than, you know, leveling a field. The gasoline that goes into these large, large machines, the diesel fuel that goes into these large, large machines, all the way through its full life cycle. If you look at it like that, I mean, if you even just think about it, it is net negative to grow plants to burn when we have no global shortage of oil. I mean, in the sense of if we needed to produce more oil for gasoline, we absolutely could. But instead, we're wasting arable land space to burn plants. Well, and the the other effect, and this is going to hit people really hard, is let's say this commodities boom that we're forecasting is going to happen, happens. I don't even want to know what the price of gasoline will be if oil is $150 a And people are going to try and say, oh, it's evil OPEC. Oh, it's evil oil companies. Well, you know, I'll tell you one thing. It doesn't help gasoline prices when a good chunk of the gasoline has to have some arbitrary, and it is an arbitrary number, amount of biofuel. It's entirely arbitrary. How much needs to be blended? Why? For what purpose? To serve whom? To help what imaginary environment where this is not a destructive practice? It doesn't get you anywhere. It's regressive. It is not progressive. The If you look at harnessing all these renewable programs and all these biofuel programs, wood pellets, ethanol, wind turbines, this sounds to me a lot more like the pre-industrial revolution than it does anything since. Mm. I think if you want to work on relying on biomass 
and relying on the wind blowing and the sun shining. Yeah, that's what we did before the 1850s. <laughs> that's all we did. That's all we had. And then we have this magical thing called a hydrocarbon come out of the rock because it's been cooking down there for millions of years and continually being just from inorganic and organic sources almost assuredly constantly being created. There is no shortage of hydrocarbons, nor will there be. There won't. Mm-hmm. There just won't. There won't. And so, it's, you know, I... It's not, let, let, let's just make artificial shortages of gasoline because... <laughs> We have to have these biofuels in there. Biofuels, again, I find them to be atrocious. Mm -hmm. I think they're horrible for the environment. They're horrible for people. They're horrible for animals. They only serve a small group positively. Yeah. But everybody else on the planet, I would say. I mean, if you didn't have any of that Iowa corn going for ethanol, like it was, I'm not talking about some made-up fantasy land. I'm talking about a time called 2003, guys. There was none of this. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It wasn't there. Everything was fine. It, it was fine. Think about how much feedstock could go for feed for livestock if we weren't just burning it in a mm-hmm. tank, hurting the engine, and making more waste things failing and breaking faster is it's horrendous it's absolutely horrendous how many people wouldn't be starving if there was more affordable feedstock for agricultural feed and grain Mm -hmm. Hmm? if there was that much of an excess it would find its way into world markets and when less people are starving more people can care about how pretty the environment is Because I've said this before, when you're starving, you don't care about global climate. You don't care about polar bears. You don't care about any of it. Why? Because you can't afford to care about any of it. You're starving. You really want to help the environment? Get rid of ethanol and do it fast. Mm -hmm. Don't think that'll happen, but I think that it is an atrocious program and it's horrible, horrible. And I think anybody that listens to this should do their own research on the things that I'm saying. But I think they should also talk to their friends and family and educate them on how bad this is. Because there are some options. I mean, even Colorado, in the last couple of years, you can go get an ethanol-free fuel. It costs you a little bit more. But you know what? Your engine's going to be happier. And you're not going to be feeding this heinous beast of a horrible program personally. I would say if you have ethanol-free fuels available to you, you might just want to try and put those in your tank, and you might tell other people about it too. Because you know what? The reality is the ethanol fuels are going to make your engines run better, or the ethanol-free fuels, the the gasoline that we all used to have before 2004, the engines are going to work better. You're not going to be feeding into this horrible, horrible system of debauchery on the environment. And... And guess what? You're probably going to get better gas mileage anyway and not even really spend that much more in the end, especially with the maintenance that you won't have on your engine compounding into that, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, just just food for thought. 
I guess we can probably move on to our last article. No, it's great. I love getting into the ethanol conversation. And then, like I mentioned, this last article also deals with litigation, but uh, it's a little bit different. This comes from Multnomah County's official website. That is a county in Oregon, and they are suing oil companies over the 2021 heat dome disaster. Today, Multnomah County filed a suit against several of the largest fossil fuel and coal-producing corporations back in June of uh, June 22nd of this year, seeking to hold them accountable for the damages arising from the 2021 Pacific Northwest Heat Dome, one of the most deadly and destructive human-made weather disasters in American history. The county alleges that the combined historical carbon footprint from the use of the defendant's fossil fuel products was a substantial factor in causing and exacerbating the heat dome, which smothered the county's residents for several days. The suit filed in Oregon Circuit Court in Multnomah County names Exxon, Shell, Chevron, BP, Conoco, Motiva, Occidental, Anadarko, Space Age Fuel, Valera, Ah, all of these companies. And uh, it's, it's just dozens, dozens. And this effort to help these fossil fuel, again, companies and their misinformation agents accountable. Ah. The county is represented by three law firms. Quote, this lawsuit is both. This lawsuit is about accountability and fairness. And I believe mm. the people of Multnomah County deserve both. These businesses knew their products were unsafe and harmful and they lied about it, said chair Jessica Vega. They have profited massively from their lies and left the rest of us to suffer the consequences and pay for the damage. We say enough is enough. Beginning on June 25th, 2021, the Multnomah County was scorched by the most extreme heat event in history. Over the course of three days, temperatures reached 108, 112, and 116 degree highs. All three of these high temperatures, up to 40 degrees above the daily average for the region, exceeded those of any other day in the county's recorded history. The extreme heat caused the death of 69 people, property damage, and significant expenditure of taxpayer monies and county resources. I mean, the article goes on to get into more of those specifics and a lot of the uh, quotes from other commissioners but essentially they're suing because they believe that weather patterns are a result of fossil fuel companies producing oil regardless of how much they consume mm. but yet i'm pretty sure that every single one of those people relies on hydrocarbons every single day in their life mm-hmm. every single one of them especially on the days where heat is up to 110 intellectual dishonesty and hypocrisy to the nth degree. These people have, Mm. they just see dollar signs on something that's politically appealing in our environment that we have with social dynamics right now. Mm. Oil is bad. It's like they try to compare hydrocarbons to the cigarette industry (laughs) as if you need cigarettes to fundamentally live Mm -hmm. you need energy reliable energy to fundamentally live the style of life that we all enjoy in a modern economy 69 people dying from a heat wave is sad but you know what kills a lot more people and a lot faster people who freeze to death because they don't have reliable heat that's a fact far more people go ahead and look it up everybody Cold kills a lot more people than heat. A lot more. A lot, lot more. And you know what kills even more and even faster than that? Starvation at scale. You know what creates starvation? Energy incompetence creates mm-hmm. starvation. 
Starvation means nobody cares about the environment and a lot more people die. I don't want to get into all these things about whether they're right or wrong. I'm just going to point out the simple fact that they want to make this hyperbole about, oh, oh, they sold harmful products. You're the one buying them. Miss and Mr. Attorney and spokespeople that say this is so horrible as you type on your computer that has hydrocarbons. As you talk on your phone that's powered from electricity that 80% chance came from a hydrocarbon source. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And history will judge you harshly, mm -hmm. I believe, for your hypocrisy. It's a horrible, horrible thing that they want to go out and demonize the very fundamental thing that makes their lifestyle even possible. You could have 69 people die in a third world village because of a 5.8, 6.5 magnitude earthquake because they don't have any structures that are safe, that are safe. But where does this come from that there's only one boogeyman and it's called CO2? And that one thing out of the thousands and thousands of things into our global ecosystem is predominantly responsible for all of the ills that we have for weather-related things. I mean, look up Alex Epstein's work. Mm -hmm. Great I books. mean, look up statistics. Look at the fact that in the last hundred years in the United States, weather-related deaths have fallen 95%. And this is with population increasing. Mm -hmm. That's a nominal number, I well, believe. How did we get to that point? What enabled people to drop weather-related deaths 98%? The ability to shield yourself from an environment that is naturally hostile. Mm -hmm. The environment is not some picturesque thing that's always just going to be, come and live here. It's going to be so great. Even the most beautiful environments can be deadly. Aspen, Colorado. Mm -hmm. Lovely looking place. Yeah. Can't live up there without the energy. No. No, you cannot. And if you wanted to just live up in a mountain holdout with just wind and solar, you're going to have some pretty bad winters. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but it's true. Yeah. And those winters will kill you a lot faster than a heat wave will. That's a fact. Look up the numbers. Mm -hmm. They're making a problem that doesn't exist. All these people die because of heat. The people died because they didn't, you know, if the heat killed them, it's probably because they didn't have an air conditioner that worked. I, I think it is, that is primarily the issue. I'm not going to venture to say that all 69 deaths were homeless people given, you know, Oregon's uh, political climate and their acceptance of certain things. But one of the quotes from Direct 4 Commissioner Sharon Mirren says, we need more options for cooling and for serving people living outside especially during the extreme weather. And that yeah. quote to me doesn't necessarily speak to campers, but rather homeless that yeah. don't have the energy resources yeah. to. Yeah. And because of line loss from electric electricity being transferred, you'd have to have the wind generation or the solar plant pretty darn close. Now, when it's that hot, you're not going to get much of wind. Mm -mm. You will get a lot of solar. You will get a lot of solar. So I guess these people in Oregon should plan to take whatever money they think it is Oregon County, right? Uh, it is yes. Multnomah in yeah. Oregon. They should just plan 
to cut down hundreds, if not thousands of acres of their beautiful forest and put up a solar farm. There, Mm -hmm. lead by example. Cut down your forest to put up a solar farm because that'll work okay when it's really, really hot. Mm -hmm. The wind won't. And it has to be pretty close because you're going to have line loss. So if you really want to make an example, cut down your trees, put up a solar farm. And let's see how the residents feel about that because I can tell you these electrical grids that need to have a balance between what they're being supplied and what's being demanded from them, it compounds the complexity of that balance when you have a grid that's getting this surge of energy in the daytime from the sunshine mm-hmm. and then nothing. So you have to, what are you going to do at night when everybody wants to run their air conditioner to sleep comfortable? Most people don't like to sleep in an 80 degree room, especially if there's any humidity. Mm-hmm. You can't sleep very well. If you can't sleep well. You're going to not have good health. And if you don't have good health, you're not going to care about the environment either. Are you? You got other problems, don't you? All these people out there like to paint this picture that we all have one common problem and it's one common boogeyman and all of our problems would go away. The environment would just be better and everything would be better and healthier if we just got off of hydrocarbons. Baloney. It's a bunch of horse shit, Mm -hmm. to be totally frank. It's absolute crap. It doesn't make any sense. You might as well bleep that one out. I can. (laughs) So with that... You know, I'll just make a short little comment. I don't know how far on time we are. We're about an hour-ish. Oil prices right now are at about just under $76 on WTI futures, $75.77. And uh, maybe we're at the beginning of this uh, bull market run that we've been waiting for. I'm going to say that I think the probability is over 50%. But the next time we have one of these, oil is going to be higher than Hey, mark your calendars, folks. Today is July 20th. Could be the day. Let's hope it's the day because I think it's long overdue. But as we close out our last domestic article, that is the end of this WWE episode. We were doing these on a monthly basis. I think we'd like to hopefully get back to that in the coming months. So keep an eye out. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe, especially if you enjoyed the presentation. Otherwise, SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, really wherever you get your podcast, you can find us. Just look for the Rare Petro podcast and for our website, www.rarepetro.com. We've got plenty of other content, written periodicals, other regular podcast segments, and a lot of news from our favorite sources that gets pushed to the website. So a wealth of information there. We personally just love thinking and growing on our own. That's partially why we like this segment so much. Please don't just take our word for it either. Fact check it. When I first started here, I didn't buy into a lot of the stuff, but once you start looking into ethanol and how some of the reports were framed and some of the methods, it gets you thinking, huh, and you dig a little deeper. So please don't take our word for it. Think for yourself. Continue to do your own research. Look out there. Start conversations. Energy ties into everything, and everyone's got a stake in the game. But before I get on to too much more of a soapbox here, I'll close it out. Anthony, you got anything else to say? Oh, I think I've said enough. <laughs> enough for a month. All right. This has been Tavis Killian and Anthony McDaniels with Rare Petro. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Thanks, Tavis.